As I said, hopefully you have an outline in front of you that says, The King for Sinners. The King for Sinners. Now, as you know, this morning we are concluding our exploration of the book of Judges. Uh, This is the 50th and final sermon in Judges. And what a journey it has been. I think I'm finishing the book of Judges personally with a mixture of thankfulness and sadness. I'm very thankful to God that each Sunday he has given us messages that have pointed us so clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful to God that you have been patient as we've worked through some of perhaps the most difficult passages in all of the Old Testament. And we've done that for the last 18 months. So I'm thankful to God for that. But I also feel the sense of sadness as you study a book for so much as you meditate on it, you feel a sense of loss that you are leaving behind some of the most extraordinary characters in all of the Old Testament. The men and women of God that we have met. Uh, men like Je- Jephthah and Samson uh, and, and Barak. Uh, wonderful women like Jael and Deborah. Uh, you feel that sense of loss, and uh, a part of me wishes we can start again, but don't worry, <laughs> uh, we are not going to do that. Uh, today we are in the final verse, Judges 21, verse 25. It says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This verse summarizes the entire book. And there are three important truths it tells us about who we are and what God has done for us in Christ. The first thing it says is that, that verse says, is that everyone is a sinner. Everyone here is a sinner before God. A Canadian woman uh, is hit by a train in Piacenza, Italy. And while she's being treated, uh, a man decides to capture the scene from the station. And so what he does is he stands back, he takes his phone, and he takes a selfie with a V-sign while the woman is lying injured, uh, being treated. He's quite proud that he's able to witness and picture himself in this terrible tragedy. Unfortunately for him, uh, someone else takes a picture of him. And soon the story has sparked such debate in Italy and across Europe. It has raised this question, what has society become? And this happened just at the beginning of June, the first week of June. And many commentators in Italy and across Europe blame the internet. They say the internet gives anyone with a mobile phone the capacity to broadcast themselves to billions at an instant. And of course, the more bizarre the photograph is, the more likes you get, and they're saying the internet is it's turned us into automatons, to use the European expression, I guess. And we are all just robots now, just feeding off the firm of the net, as it were. The truth, of course, is that that young man is only expressing what is inside all of us. You see, all of us live to promote ourselves. You do not have a better PR agent than you. You live to promote yourself, you live for yourself, You live to look after number one. So do I. The Bible tells us, though, that that is not how we were created. God did not create us to live like that. Our lives were designed by God to love God and 
Love him above everything else. Above the world around us. Above yourself even. But as you know, our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's love. And so since the days of Eden, we have swapped the love for God with love for self. The love for God with self-love. And we see this self-love here in verse 25 of Judges chapter 21. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The phrase, everyone did what was right in his or our own eyes, tells us two things. First, it tells us the people of Israel live by what they think is right to them, not by what God says is right. They live by what they think is right, what they think is right to them, not what they think, not what God says is right. You see, if you tell these people that it is wrong to practice homosexuality as they do in Judges 19, we saw that, or they try to do it, they will say, well, who is to say what is right and wrong? And everyone has their own different standards. You do what is right in your eyes, and I'll do what is right in my eyes. Secondly, this verse tells us that the people of Israel live by what brings them the greatest pleasure rather than what brings God the greatest pleasure or other people's pleasure, so to speak. You see, if you tell them that taking another human life by killing babies in Jabesh Gilead is wrong, as they do in Judges 21, they'll say to you, well, it is how I feel about it. We feel compassion for Benjamin. So we are willing to kill babies in Jabesh Gilead because that's how we feel. It doesn't matter what the baby feels. You see, the people of Israel do what they want in their own way and in their own time. And the Bible has a word for this. The Bible calls it sin. You see, sin, friends, is not only doing bad things. We need to get this word. I hammer this point all the time. Because when I talk to people and say, you are a sinner, a lot of them tell me, look, you have your eyes, I have my eyes. You have your thoughts, I have my thoughts. You have your standard, I have my standard. A lot of people, even believers, feel that they have reached that position where they don't sin anymore. But friends, sin... It's not only doing bad things. As Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your life on anything, on anything other than on God. And that means that all of us here are sinners. Because the truth of us is that all of us here, whether we trust in Jesus or not, we are sinners. And the reason we are sinners is that there's no one sat here this morning who can truly say that God is first place every day, every moment, in your life, in everything you do. No. Many of the things you do, even for followers of Jesus, looks after number one and number one only. And we justify that God is actually sharing us on when in effect we're just living for ourselves. So all of us here are sinners. We are all sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And the wages of your sin is death. 
Sin brings chaos. And that's why it's a big deal, isn't it? And that's the second point we see here. So everyone is a sinner. Why is that a big deal? Because sin produces chaos. It damages us. That's the second point. Look at verse 22 again. Verse 25, sorry, says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Don't miss that phrase, in those days. What days is he talking about? He's talking about the days of judges. He's saying, if you want to see what life is like when people are hugging sin tight, if you want to see what life is like when people are cozy with sin, when they live only for themselves, when sin dominates their life, when the self is king, he says, look at judges. Look at judges. Read judges. If you want to know sin, read judges. Over the last 49 sermons, we have seen that the days of judges are days of moral chaos. Wherever we live. And I want to suggest that sin produces chaos in four areas of our lives. It's in, it's in front of your outline. First, sin produces chaos in our heart. It produces chaos in our heart. You see, when you live for yourself, it, it not only corrupts your heart, it damages your life. Sometimes sin even literally kills us. Physical death. We see this in the life of Samson. In Judges 13 to 16. Samson is a miracle baby from the barren womb of Mrs. Manoah. God fills Samson with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And Samson's parents are wonderful parents. They do everything they can to raise him up as a what? As a Nazarite. A holy man. That's how they raised up Samson. But as soon as Samson's become a young adult, he chooses a path of sin. He has anger management issues. Even he's going around breaking everything, breaking everyone out of anger. And he sleeps around with anyone he finds right in his eyes. In the end, Samson loves sin more than God. And his love of sin leads him to do what? To lose his eyes. He literally loses his eyes. The eyes that led him to the women in the end are plucked out by God through the Philistine. He loses his eyes because of his lust after women. And his last days, the last days of Samson we've seen, are spent in humiliation as a clown in Dagon's temple. Samson proves what Richard Sieve says. Sin is so sweet in the committing as it is bitter in the reckoning. All sins damages people. So sin produces chaos in the heart. The second thing we've seen in Judges is that sin produces chaos in the family. Chaos in the family. When God is not first in your life, the first impact you feel beyond yourself is having a broken family. Non-functional family. And we see this in the life of Gideon in Judges chapter 8 to 9 to 9. Do you remember Gideon? God raises up this Gideon. 
He raises him up and he, he gives him great victory over his enemies. Oh, the 300 men, they do such havoc under Gideon. They, God gives them amazing victory. But before Gideon dies, you remember something tragic happens. His head grows big. And he makes an idol. He, makes, he takes his effort and turns it into an idol. And the Bible tells us in Judges chapter 8 that all of Israel wars after it. They start worshipping this effort thing he makes. And as soon as Gideon dies, that sin he planted grows into a monster that begins to eat his family, literally. One of his sons, Abimelech, who he had from a concubine, because his head grew so big, he even took on a concubine. And, and his son, Abimelech, has a large head of his own. The dad has a large head, he's dead. He wants to even have a larger head. Abimelech wants to be crowned king of Israel. And his name actually says, my father is king. That tells you something about how Gideon was thinking. And Abimelech is so driven to be king, what does he do? He kills 70 of his brothers on a storm. And he then crowns himself king in Shechem. Gideon's family is completely wiped out because of his sin. And how does Abimelech die? Do you remember? He dies. <laughs> this is interesting. He dies by a woman lodging a stone on top of his head. There's a lesson in that. A man who murdered his brother on a stone dies by a new stone. The Bible is reminding us here the life through the life of Gideon. Gideon is warning us that the people who suffer most from our sin is our immediate families. Sin damages our spouses, our children, our grandchildren. Friends, you will never raise a strong family unless God is number one in your life. We could just have a whole series of sermons on this topic from judges. The other examples. We saw the Levite and the concubine, didn't we? And now it's sin in the family that destroyed everything in the end. We could talk about Jephthah and how he was thrown out by his family there. We could talk about Jephthah himself, how he sacrificed his daughter. You can study about the impact of sin on the family just through judges. Sin damages our spouses and our children. The third thing that sin does is sin produces moral chaos in our worship of God. It produces chaos in the worship of God. You see, when people live for themselves, they worship God in their own way. That's how they do it. They, still, they, they pretend to worship God, but they do it in their own way. And we see this in Judges 17 to 18 with the Levite priest, Jonathan, a descendant of Moses even. Do you remember after working in Micah's idolatrous religion for 10 shekels and a shirt, he abandons him for better pay and fame with the renegade tribe of Dan. Jonathan not only blesses the evil destruction of Laith by the Danites, he becomes the head of this new perverted religion. And we, we, we started this and we said what happens is that after that abomination is set up in the, by the tribe of Dan, God comes and destroys it hundreds of years later. 
as the people of Israel are sent into Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. What we learn from that is that if your heart has not truly surrendered to God, friends, get this right, if your heart here this morning has not truly bowed the knee to Christ, even your attendance in church is an abomination to God. If you have not truly surrendered to God, your very life is an abomination to Him. It is more tragic than even what Jonathan did. So sin produces chaos in our hearts. It produces chaos in the family. It produces chaos in our worship of God. And finally, sin produces chaos in the nation. Chaos in the country as a whole. We see this in Judges. If God is not number one in our lives, our communities become damaged. We see this repeatedly in Judges. I mean, you could have, again, a whole series about this. But what is clear, what we see, first of all, repeatedly, is that Israel is oppressed by other nations, isn't it? Because of their sin. When they first sin against God, they find themselves oppressed by, who, do they, who oppresses them? Cushan Ristahem. And God delivers them from Cushan, the Mesopotamian king. But they sin again. They sin again. God delivers them by Othaniel, but they sin again. And again, they are enslaved now, this time by the little nation of Moab. They, they cry out to God, God by his mercy, they don't really repent, but God by his mercy intervenes. He raises up Ayud, the wonderful Ayud. Ayud serves them, if you want to speak. But what do they do again? They sin again. And they are now being oppressed by Sisera and Jabin. And then God has to now raise up. Who does he raise up? He raises up Deborah, oh, the wonderful Deborah. Uh, with the support of Barak, God delivers them. And we have that wonderful song in Judges 5 of their victory song. And you think, wow, this is heaven now. But no, sin enters again. And the cycle goes on and on and on and on. What, what the passage of the Bible is telling us is that sin, you see, causes chaos in the entire nation. And in total, we see chaos in our hearts, chaos in our families, chaos in our worship of God, chaos in the nation. Sin is its own punishment. Proverbs 5, verse 22 to 23, put this down, says this. It's a passage we should know by heart. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and is held fast in the cords of his sin. Sin has us in a headlock. That's what it does. He dies, look at verse 23. He dies for lack of discipline because of his great folly. He is led astray. In the words of John Owen, what the author of Hebrews is saying, the author of Proverbs is saying, sorry, is that be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what we see in Judges. Now, a year ago, a woman in Ohio, USA, phoned the emergency services. She phoned them to report that one of the boa constrictors she had adopted had latched onto her. The snake had wrapped itself around her neck and it was biting off her face. And she was struggling, she was being strangled by this snake, and, and she was calling the emergency services for help. 
You see, this woman had kept 11 snakes in her home. And the, I'm told the boa constrictors are one of the largest snakes you can find. And one of them decided to wrap itself around her neck. She had raised it as a pet, and all of a sudden, it turned against her. And she would have died had the emergency services not arrived in time. As we come through, judges have been keen to remind you that you should think of sin as a deadly anaconda. A deadly anaconda that has wrapped itself around you. Every time you live for yourself, it drains life from you. It snuffs life out. Every time you live for yourself, you're feeding it. And as you feed it and it grows powerful, it snuffs life out of you. And its aim is not only to destroy you, but to destroy your wife, to destroy your husband, to destroy your kids. It wants to destroy your mom, your dad. This, this sin wants to destroy everything you care about. It wants to destroy this church. It wants to destroy the country you live in. It wants to destroy you at work. And ultimately, this sin, after it's finished with you, this deadly anaconda wants to swallow you up. It wants to swallow you up and destroy you forever in hell. The problem, of course, is that we are all sinners. All of us have wrapped up in this deadly anaconda of sin. We are completely helpless. And we are helpless, not because we don't know our Bibles, not because we don't attend church. The people of Israel had high priests and knew their Bibles, but they were still helpless. We are helpless because at the call of our being, his sin lives there. Completely helpless. So where do we turn for help? Where do we go to find someone who will break the power of this deadly anaconda? Well, this is the good news of Judges. Judges is good news for people wrapped up in sin. Because the good news is that there is a king who can help us. And this is the final point in Judges. The first point is that everyone is a sinner. Why is that a big deal? Because sin produces chaos in our lives. But here is the good news. Jesus is the king for sinners. Jesus has come as king for you and I, friend. As we go through the book of Judges, the question that confronts everyone who reads Judges is simple. Why is there so much sin and chaos in this book? And the answer is in verse 25. Let's look at verse 25 again. Judges 21, verse 25. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Don't miss the point there. In those days there was no king in Israel. Now, if you read that, it feels strange, doesn't it? I hope when you read that you find it a bit strange. Because I find that strange because 
Yes, we have no one named king, but God had given them leaders. People that functions just as effectively as David and so and others would later, I guess, function as king. Better even than Manasseh and other despicable kings will get later on in First and Second Chronicles. So God, in a way, yes, he didn't give him someone with the title of king, but he certainly gave them authority and rule. So what the author of Judges really here is telling us, is getting at, is not so much that God had, Israel had no human king, that there was no David or no Saul. No, what he's getting at is that the people of Israel had rejected God as their king. There was no king in Israel, even though the high king of heaven ruled. They didn't come to him. They didn't submit to his authority. You see, instead of the grace of God melting their hearts to live for God, it had the opposite effect of adding Israel's heart. Israel became very rebellious. Friends, don't miss this very point. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the rocks. The same grace that God lavishes on your life can neither melt you to love him more, or it can harden your heart before you. Israel was hardened by the grace of God. It was almost like made dry and ready for burning. But the amazing thing, you see, is that though this looks tragic at this side, the good news of Judges is that God allowed them to rebel against them. Don't miss that. God allowed this rebellion against him by Israel. Why? Out of love for them. And most importantly, out of love for you. God did it because he had a better king in mind than the 12 judges. He allowed them to rebel against his 12 judges because he had a better king in mind. A better judge, a better king, a better lord, a better ruler to come for them and for us. Imagine with me you are a time-traveling historian. And you travel to the days of judges. Okay, just you are with A.G. Wells or one of these Doctor Who guys. and You are accompanying them and you land your phone, your phone box in the day of judges. And you have a chance to observe all these 12 judges. What do you see when you look at them? You first see the first judge, Othaniel. Righteous, faithful, married to a wonderful wife, Aksa. You note the courage of Ayud, the second judge, as he walks bravely into the chambers of Eglon, the king of Moab, and assassinates him to free Israel. You travel on and you cheer on the... You, you, you see Shamgar. You cheer for Shamgar as he lands those holy blows to kill 600 Philistines with the mayor ox god. And as you get back in your phone box and travel forward in time, you are amazed to see the fearlessness of Deborah. In a land of wimpy men, in a land of Barak, who would not fight except he was hiding behind Deborah's skate, so to speak. You are amazed by that. And as you get back in the phone box, you travel forward. You shed tears, joyful tears, 
As you witness that amazing triumph of Gideon in weakness against the Midianites. And you have more tears of joy as you travel forward and see Jephthah, the street gangster turned judge, clothed by the Spirit of God to overpower the king of Amor. And Jephthah destroys them all against the odds. And as you get back in your phone box, you travel forward again. What do you see? You see the obscure lives of Tola and Elon. They puzzle you as you look at these men, these two judges. Why does God need these nobodies? They look so obscure, so ordinary. And you get back in your phone box, you travel further. As you see, you are skeptical when you see Jair, Ibazan, and Ibadon. When you look at them, you are very skeptical. Because you look at their lives, they are so rich. They ride on donkeys. These are God's judges. And you wonder to yourself, are these really judges? Can God really work through these men? And finally, you keep traveling in your phone box. And you meet the great Samson. Here is someone completely different from the other 11 men. Here is a one arm, man army terrorizing the Philistines. But there is more as you look at Samson. Because you see in Samson, here is a man who defeats his enemy by doing what? By laying down his life. Samson defeats the Philistines. He dies for Israel by laying down his life in Dagon's temple. And you wonder to yourself, after you finish your tour of judges, what could all this mean? And then it dawns on you. All these figures are pictures of a larger puzzle, a larger story. You realize all of a sudden that as you put this photograph of Elon, you put this photograph of Deborah, as you put them together, they form a wonderful picture. A wonderful picture of someone. A wonderful picture of a Messiah who is to come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And you see in him, all of this, a Savior who serves through weakness. A Savior who is glorious like Abazon. A Savior who is humble like Tola. A Savior who defeats his enemies on the cross. And you realize now that here is a king who has come to save me. God's true king who fulfills all these other judges. He has come to save me from sin by his death on the cross. All of a sudden you understand judges. Judges has been pointing to him and him and him alone. And you realize now that here now is a savior who offers me citizenship in his kingdom. To welcome you into his heaven. To have you seated alongside him as his very own. To share his life with you. Like union of marriage. If you are his, you inherit all God's blessings. His life becomes your life. And the question now you ask yourself is this. Have I truly surrendered to this king? Is the Lord Jesus Christ the king of my life? You are confronted by this evidence and you say, can I truly say he's my number one? <clears throat> Remember, friend, there is no alternative to living under King Jesus. Because, you see, living without Jesus is not freedom. 
We sin while living without Jesus does. Chaos in the heart. Chaos in the family. Chaos in our worship of God. Chaos in the nation. No. Only in Jesus is there true freedom. And so you see that a life without Jesus is not a life of freedom. It's a life of perpetual chaos and everlasting punishment. To accept this king is your only alternative. So you must now, confronted by this evidence, surrender to Jesus now. Ask him to forgive you of your sins based on the cross. Friends, no tick box exercise. True radical surrender. God has not gone to the trouble of having 12 pictures of judges to point to Jesus for you just to give Jesus a nod. No, his life demands your all, your complete surrender to him. That's what it means to be born again, to reach that point of complete surrender to him, to Jesus as Lord and King. And if you do that, if you come to him, repent of your sin, Christ will welcome you in, into his kingdom. Now some of you have already done that. You are trusting in Jesus. And as we go through judges, you've seen your own sin, and yet you're trusting even in Christ more. And as you come to the end of judges, it should fill you with thankfulness, isn't it? Be thankful to God that you now trust, you truly trust in Christ. Be thankful to him because you know why you need to be thankful to him? Because you have not done this on your own. We are all by nature like that young man in Piacenza. We're in love with ourselves. But by the grace of God, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, I don't know why or why, but somehow, God in his mercy has reached out to me, a sinner. He has spoken to me of the grace of Christ. And I've truly repented. And I've found faith in him. We need to be thankful for that. If you can say that with me, you need to be thankful to God for that. Because it's not because of anything you have done, friend. It's because of what Jesus has done. Thank God that you are under King Jesus. Thank God that you live in his kingdom. Thank God that you have a new spiritual address. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And how do we express our thanks to God? Is it by tolerating sin that produces chaos? God forbid. Is it by putting other things in our lives first? God forbid. Is it by making our life together as a church as a tick box exercise? God forbid. As Brother Michael likes to say, certainly not, isn't it, sir? It is by making Jesus the center of gravity of our life. The sun on which everything in our lives orbit around. So we must surrender to him. Even now, believers, surrender to him now again. Continue to surrender every day. We must be like a baby that depends on our parents. Everything we need is found in this marvelous king. In beautiful Jesus. So hold on to Jesus. Forsake hope. You see, friends, God's agenda is for all his children to one day lay down their crowns before Jesus' throne. In worship. That's what we're living for, folks. We're not living for this world. We're not living for this world's priority. We're living for the crown of life. To one 
one day, as we started in our Bible studies, take our crowns and lay them before Christ. That's all that matters in the end. And we can only do that if we continue to surrender to Him. So I want to encourage you this morning to resolve in your heart to wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus. Say to Jesus, Lord, even before you ask the question, my answer to you is yes. I don't know what question, Lord, you want to ask of me, but even before you ask, my answer to you is yes. Whatever you command, anywhere, anytime, my answer is yes. It's going to hurt me. It's going to be painful for me, I know. But my answer to you is yes, because I am a member, a citizen of your kingdom. Friends, friends, friends. If we are not able to tell Jesus that, if we can tell Jesus that, if we can tell him that he's number one like that, then do not kid yourself, friends. No matter what you think, no matter what you say, then you are not truly a child of God. Yes, you may be like Israel we've seen in Judges. But if you cannot make that radical surrender to Christ, if there's not even any desire to do that, friends, you may be Israel from outside, but Benjamin in the heart. Christians in name only. A bit like my many memberships I've had in gyms, where I sign up in name only. But I hardly turn up. Don't make your membership of the kingdom of God to be like that. Let it be tangible. But if you find it difficult to surrender like this, then cry out God to truly change your heart. To give you a new birth. So that you can live a true fulfilling life under the kingship of Christ. I want to end judges with a plea to you, friends. There should be no one in this fellowship who believes they're a believer on my account because I baptized you, because I said you did well. That must not be the basis of your trust in Christ. Don't look affirmation from me. Have you surrendered to Christ? Not what I think. Have you surrendered to him? Surrender to him. And him alone. Amen.